This is MockCast, the best place to catch up on what's going on with Mock Convention 2020. Because the world is waiting for your generation to lead. We all have a role to play in sustaining the greatness of America. Hello and welcome to our first political analysis episode of MockCast. Today we are joined by our global and domestic experts, Wes Colt and Luke Basham, respectively. And we're going to be talking about kind of the nitty-gritty of the political system and how MockCon is working to do our research. So Luke, what is your role in the political team? Well, I'm the Democratic Party analyst, so I specifically help in making sure that MockCon 2020 emulates the actual Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee coming this July as accurately as possible. Uh, I also work with John Harashinsky, the political chair, and Kyle Perel, the national political analyst, uh, in taking our sort of 35,000-foot view of national politics, trying to gauge different valuable research points and uh, different valuable trends. Awesome. And Wes, you? I am the Mid-Atlantic Regional Chair, which means I am responsible for directing and assisting with the research of the six states of the Mid-Atlantic. Those are Virginia, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. But I've also taken a leading role in uh, research into the foreign policy of the Democratic candidates due to my interest in the area, as well as my major in global politics. That's incredible. Well, I think we're both very lucky to have both of you and all of your expertise on the team. So Luke, as kind of our Democratic Party guru, can you tell us what's going on in the party right now? And also, for those of us who may not know or be experts in the area, can you talk a little bit about how the primary process works? Absolutely. So right now we are seeing the largest primary field in the history of either party. It's the, they surpassed the 2016 Republican Party for that distinction. Uh, we have tw- we had at one point 26 candidates. So the field has now shrunk down to 20. The fact that there are 20 candidates does obscure, though, the fact that most of them, or at least half of them, are polling below or around 1%. Uh, we do see a fairly standard-sized field as far as candidates who are doing pretty well. Uh, so the primary start in Iowa on February 3rd and end with D.C. on June 16th. Uh, the convention will be held in July 13th through 16th in Milwaukee. After Iowa comes New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, respectively. And after that is Super Tuesday, where around one-third of the delegates, including California and Texas, are on the table. Campaigns traditionally need momentum going into Super Tuesday, and that's why they put so much money and resources into the early states. We can see this with Pete Buttigieg in Iowa, for instance. And Modcon happens the Tuesday after New Hampshire. And while it may sound kind of like a relief that we have Iowa and New Hampshire to go off of before the convention, it's worth remembering that those states aren't always representative. Cruz won Iowa in 2016, and Bernie won New Hampshire. The delegate selection process, as you mentioned, is a little more complicated than it needs to be, but I can try to outline it succinctly for you. So there are really three types of delegates. There are pledged district delegates, pledged state delegates, and unpledged PLEOs, or party leaders and elected officials, also called superdelegates. Talk about an acronym. Yes. Pledged district delegates are allocated to congressional districts and states based on the results within those respective districts while pledged state delegates are allocated based on the statewide results. Unpledged PLEOs or superdelegates can vote as they please. The Democrats stripped those superdelegates of their first ballot voting rights after facing pressure from 2016. Uh, Superdelegates supported Hillary by around a five-to-one margin. So we don't have superdelegates in this convention? Not on the first ballot. So that's the key. Superdelegates can't vote on the first ballot. And if a candidate wins a majority of pledged delegates, non-superdelegates, on the first ballot, then they win the nomination. 
But if no one can obtain over 50% of those pledged delegates on the first ballot, the superdelegates come right back into the mix, in which case they hold a lot of the power. I'll conclude with a technical clarification. It's worth mentioning that to win any delegates at all, you must obtain at least 15% of the vote. Delegates are allocated proportionally for everyone who does break that threshold. However, you don't need to win 15% statewide to win some delegates because those district delegates uh, are proportioned the same way. You can win delegates, for instance, from Virginia's 9th Congressional District if you get over 15% there, even if you don't get over 15% statewide. So every vote really does count. It really does, yes, especially in the Democratic primary where you do get delegates allocated to individual districts. Right. And so for all of us who are kind of watching the news, we hear a lot about Super Tuesday. Can you kind of tell us again why we should be so concerned, maybe if we're talking to our parents, professors, someone at a coffee shop, how do we talk eloquently about Super Tuesday? Sure. Well, it's worth remembering that the primary up until Super Tuesday is sort of building up to that point because the four primaries that I mentioned, which precede Super Tuesday, Mm -hmm. Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, they're all on different days. So they're sort of the headline of that particular week. Who wins that state? Then on Super Tuesday, we have over a dozen states at once, including California and Texas, ultimately making up around a third of the you know, delegate total for the entire primary, all on the same day, all independent of one another, as in the moment cannot build momentum in Texas that gives you a win in California, for instance, because they're voting at the same time. And really, whoever comes out on top on Super Tuesday is usually the nominee. It's very rare that you'll see otherwise. And, and along the same vein, when you have really close two-person races like uh, Obama and Hillary in 08, Hillary and Bernie in 2016, you see both candidates do fairly well on Super Tuesday. For the morning brew version, the primaries before Super Tuesday are building up to Super Tuesday. And Super Tuesday itself determines the direction for the entire rest of the primary. So a pretty big freaking deal. So a pretty big freaking deal, yeah. That's what I like to hear. Thank you, Luke. I definitely feel like I have a better grasp on the primary structure, and I'm even a politics major, so that was terribly helpful. So let's kind of pivot from the domestic to the foreign policy aspects of it. Wes, there's a lot going on right now, I think, to say the least, if you terribly underestimated it, in the foreign policy realm in the world at large. You recently published an article on a political hub about how foreign policy is affecting the primaries of the Democratic Party. Can you talk to us about what's going on there? Right. So I, I think one of the most interesting things about um, – this primary's foreign policy debate is that there is actually wide agreement. The uh, areas of foreign policy that candidates tend to agree on are things like the, for example, a two-state solution in the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict, uh, re-examining the United States-Saudi relationship um, in light of their intervention in Yemen and killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, rebuilding, I hear the word rebuilding um, a lot in reference to the State Department um, as in reaction to Donald Trump's de-emphasization of the of State Department and diplomacy and kind of a return to multi, multilateralism and diplomacy in general, especially in regards to multilateral agreements as opposed to going at it alone on the world stage. Um, another thing that is pretty much all candidates agree on is they all want to find a way to join the JCPOA, which we all call the Iran deal. That is something they don't, they might disagree on timelines and how to go about that, but their end goal is all the same. They want to rejoin it. And the JCPOA is about nuclear defense and strategy, correct? Yes. It was the Obama era agreement with the Iranian government to see a temporary halt in their uh, ability to develop a nuclear weapon. Right. 
uh, which Trump withdrew from and which caused a lot of international outcry. So if we're going to look back on Democratic primaries and elections in the past. How has foreign policy traditionally played in terms of priorities for the candidates? Traditionally, um, in the primaries, it, I mean, dem domestic policy usually takes the front seat. Um, but in general, from what I've seen, foreign policy is generally in reaction to just kind of like this one, this primary. It is kind of in reaction to whoever's president at the moment, and they have to kind of just kind of to run with what they're given in that sense to take stances on what's actually happening. Um, so, so something like the, the Iraq War would be something that the, the Democratic primaries were uh, concerned with in the past, or in the Cold War, how to deal with the Soviet Union detente, whether or, right. whether to detente or um, encirclement of the Soviet Union, that sort of thing, sure. more active or less active. Um, but interestingly, now where there are candidates who disagree, the, the, the instances where candidates disagree are when some candidates take policy positions that are in line with the Trump administration, such as how candidates such as Bernie Sanders have stated their opposition to trade agreements, multilateral trade agreements like the reworked uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Trump, one of his core blanks was, I will not sign on to that because it is a Obama-era deal and treaty. Um, but that is, and But there are many other Democratic candidates who, like Hillary Clinton, last time around um, have stated their intention to encourage the U.S. to sign on uh, because the president has to be ratified by the Senate, but do all they can to rejoin the uh, treaty. Great. So this might be a little bit of a tough question and coming off of you thinking of asking you like, are you done the wheel? What do you think is the most important foreign policy or the most indicative foreign policy issue for the Democratic Party right now? Like what is one stance you think people will take or not take that will be really indicative their momentum or as Luke was talking about? Well, I think there is a general, especially among certain demographics of the, the Democratic coalition um, who are cringing at what they perceive as uh, with the U.S. withdrawing from the world stage and maybe spurning traditional allies. And I think a general encompassing um, plank that all candidates sort of share is we're going to return to international partnership and multilateralism. I think that rings true with a lot of voters. Um, and although there's some disagreement on the specifics of that, I think all candidates are trying to rally support based on that. It's great to see people agree on something. That's all really fascinating. Well, boys, I think that's about all the time we have for today. For our viewers who are interested in keeping up with mock on political team analysis and for more of this riveting conversation, visit the political lab on our website. We've got everything from candidate profiles to articles to all the information that you can get on CNN or C-SPAN, but it's coming from us. It's coming from your friends and your students. So visit the website, and we'll have more content up for you soon. And for Luke and Wes, thank you so much for joining us today. We know it's really great, and we're looking forward to seeing what happens in February. Thanks for having me. February can't come soon enough. <laughs> Thanks for having me.